said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures, and thank you that all the scriptures point to Jesus Christ. And even in this great story of Ruth, where we see loyalty to family, where we see romantic love, behind it all is Christ. And so I pray that this week and next week as we wrap up the book of Ruth, that above anything else we may see, we may see Christ and know him more and love him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. Have you ever taken a calculated risk? A calculated risk, as defined by Webster's, is a chance taken after careful estimation of the probable outcome. A chance taken after careful estimation of the probable outcome. The term was very first time it was ever used was in World War II. It was coined in World War II when the chances of losing bombers were taken into account before a bombing mission was sent out. After the war, the term was transferred to other types of undertakings. Uh, for example, like taking a chance with your money, uh, take a calculated risk with an investment. Um, you put your money into a certain stock or you invest in this or spend your money on this. Um, or maybe with a relationship. You take a calculated risk by investing your life into a person or into a specific situation that carries with it some, some, uh, some risk. Um, politicians take calculated risks all the time, right? They, they look at the poll numbers and they decide, am I going to say I believe in this or believe in this? And, you know, they take a, a calculated risk. Um, Christians are sometimes called to take God-honoring calculated risks. I believe that adoption is a calculated risk. When you bring another child into your home, especially adopting a child that's older, there's a calculated risk there. You have to look at how it's going to affect your family, and you make a decision. Sharing the gospel is a calculated risk. You go up to someone, and you share the gospel. Maybe it's a friend, and, and you're afraid that maybe this could affect our relationship. Maybe the person won't want to talk to me anymore. Maybe it's a stranger, and Maybe they'll, they'll call me crazy or something. And, and so we take a calculated risk to go and to share the gospel. The mission field. Going on the mission field to be a missionary is a calculated risk. Heather's parents, when they went to the mission field, put, had to put her in boarding school. And that's a calculated risk to put their child in boarding school because the country they're at doesn't have any means to, to educate. And so there's calculated risk that missionaries take. Uh, the Brysons took a calculated risk sending Tanner down to, to Honduras and sending their, their young son down to a foreign country, that's a calculated risk. Missionaries like John Patton, who went to the New Hebrides, and those islands were known for their cannibals. And matter of fact, previous missionaries and previous settlers or explorers had actually been eaten by the inhabitants of the island, yet he takes his family there to take the gospel to the Indians on that island. That's a calculated risk. Or um, two unnamed Moravian missionaries. Maybe you've heard this story. They um, heard that there was an island in the Caribbean that, that a slave owner owned. He populated it with slaves, but he would not allow the gospel. He wouldn't allow any preachers, any missionaries, nobody to come onto the island. So these two Moravian missionaries decided the way they were going to get the gospel on the island was to sell themselves into slavery. They sold themselves to the owner of this island so they could go there as slaves and share the gospel Secretly, that's a calculated risk. Calculated risks are taken when we're sure that God has laid it upon our heart to do something for his namesake that is out of the ordinary, maybe even dangerous, or both. Something that may backfire if we're not understanding God's will fully. Okay? Something that may be perceived by someone else as being questionable or unwise or even, un or even foolish. 
I remember some friends of ours that are from Arkansas who are now missionaries in Turkey. They took their three young sons to Turkey. They've had another child since they've been in Turkey. But um, they, when they went, before they went, they met Heather and I here in Atlanta. We went out and had lunch with them. And they were just sharing something that we're very familiar with, and that is that the reaction of family members, when you tell them, we're going to a Muslim country to share the gospel, and we have to do it privately, but we have to do it quietly because we can't go in as, as gospel missionaries. And their family was concerned and somewhat upset and didn't understand this, considered it unwise, considered it foolish to take such a calculated risk with their family. Now, let me say this, though. A calculated risk is never toying with sin. If sin is involved, it's not a calculated risk. It's planned transgression. Um, Like, I'm going to go sleep with a prostitute so I can minister to prostitutes. That is not a calculated risk. That is planned transgression. Or, like, um, I'm going to go take heroin so I can minister to heroin addicts. That is not a calculated risk. That is stupid, planned transgression. So that's not what I'm talking about here this morning. The God-magnifying calculated risk is the well-thought-out, prayed-over risk that a believer is willing to embrace in faith in order to advance the work and the Word of God. And there is a tension here. There's a tension here when we think about taking a calculated risk. Because we've been talking about in Ruth so far, the overarching theme in Ruth is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, right? And so uh, Proverbs 16.9 fits well with with, uh, this book. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. So Ruth is out in chapter 2 that we looked at last week, and she's wandering along, and it says she happened to walk into the field of Boaz. And we know from Proverbs 16.9 that nothing just happens to happen, that God is sovereign and he's in control. A man may plan his way, but the Lord establishes his step. Yet there's a tension here because six verses earlier in Proverbs 16.3, we read this. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And so we can't have this fatalistic view of God's sovereignty that that we don't actually make plans, and we don't actually work, and we don't actually take calculated risks. We do. We're called to do that. According to Proverbs 16.9, we are to make plans. We're We're to work. We're to have ideas. But we're also to do it, commit it to the Lord, and trust it over to His sovereignty. And that's what a calculated risk is all about. And the reason I mention all this is because in Ruth chapter 3, we read of a gigantic calculated risk. What Naomi sets out to do and what Ruth obeys her and does is a gigantic calculated risk. And we're going to talk about that some this morning, but let's recap where we've been so far. So um, if you're new with us today, first of all, let me apologize. I'm going to have to drink a lot of water today. Because if you know me, I annually, at this time of the year, I start my battle with the allergens, and it will last until April. All right? So, I have to drink some water so I can keep my voice this morning. So, Ruth, the book, the book starts out with uh, this guy by the name of Elimelech, and he takes his family and goes to the nation of Moab. The reason he goes is because um, there's been famine in the land of Israel. Apparently God has judged the land of Israel. And, and so Elimelech takes his family and leaves. Specifically, they leave from Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So they leave the house of bread because there's no bread, and they go to Moab. But I believe that this was a very dubious decision. This wasn't a wise decision by Elimelech. We talked about that in week one. Because it, it doesn't make any sense for him to leave the people of God and go to a pagan nation of Moab. <coughs> I better stay up here near my water. And go to a pagan nation of Moab. Because the Moabites in particular were very pagan. Matter of fact, they were singled out to be cursed by God. They had done some really nasty things. You can read about it in Numbers 22. Some of the nasty things they did. Or you can read about their origins in Genesis 19. And so they go to Moab. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But Elimelech, he's going to run away from the problem. He's going to run away from the famine. He's going to run away from the death that follows famine. And when he gets to Moab, wouldn't you know it, he dies. The very thing he was running away from, he, he ended up finding, which was death. And he had taken with him, because dad, your actions don't just affect you. They affect your whole family. He had taken with him Naomi, his wife, and his two sons, Malon and Chilion. Now, Malon and Chilion, when they get there, they decide to marry some 
Moabite women, some pagan Moabite women. Now, this was strictly prohibited by God as well in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Not because God is a racist. God embraces all races, but God wanted purity in their faith. And he didn't want them to intermarry with pagan people who would bring in false gods. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament, how the false gods would come in. All you got to do is look at the life of Solomon, who had hundreds of wives, pagan wives, and the, the nation became corrupted under Solomon's reign. So he go, they go there, Mahon and Chilion marry um, two Moabite pagan women. Ruth, who's the focus of this book. The other one is Orpah, not Oprah. That's a different pagan woman. Orpah, okay? And so they marry these two pagan women, and wouldn't you know it, they die. So there's this sense here that God's judging this family pretty harshly. And so he's judging them. They die. Naomi is left completely destitute. She doesn't have a husband, nor does she have sons. Therefore, she has no provision. She has no protection. She has no purpose, really, anymore for her life. And so she becomes bitter. She finds out that God has apparently lifted the famine off of the nation of Israel. So she says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And Orpah and Ruth decide they're going to go with her. Now, Orpah and Ruth, their situation is not quite as dire. They at least still have family. They've lost their husbands. They've got family. They're young. They can remarry. Now, I think that Naomi kind of figures this out halfway home, and she says, turns to her daughters-in-laws and says, you know what, y'all go home. Go back to your family. Go back to your gods. Find a husband. Get your life back in order. Don't worry about me. And after some back and forth, she convinces Orpah to do that. Orpah leaves, goes back to her gods and her people. But Ruth says, no way, no way. Where you go, I will go. Okay, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. She's totally committed to Naomi. And in the process, she resigns herself to a life of widowhood and complete destitution in that society. So we get to chapter, well, right before chapter 2, they get to Bethlehem. And uh, you remember Naomi shows up. She's a bit bitter. Matter of fact, she's so bitter, she changes her name to bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. And gets there. She's angry. She's angry at God. She rightly attributes all that's happened in her life to God. She has good theology. She, she, she recognizes God's sovereignty. But where she's messing up is that she's forgetting that God is good. And if she truly is one of God's people and truly is in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, then everything he's doing in her life will work for her good. Doesn't mean she has to grin and, and just embrace all of it with, with great happiness and, and joy, but she can rest in the confidence that God is at work here and he's working things for my good. But instead she gets very bitter and in the process she forgets that she even has Ruth with her. I mean, I think she's walking into Bethlehem. They all gather around her and she's just saying, oh, woe is me. You know, when we develop a woe is me attitude, we forget about other people. We forget about the good things God's doing in our life, the good people he's put in our life. So chapter 2 rolls around, and we see how good this lady named Ruth really is. She has embraced the one true God, Yahweh. And then we see her character come out in Ruth chapter 2 as she goes out to glean. And as I mentioned earlier, she just so happened to walk into the field of Boaz. And we see the character of Boaz come out. So Ruth shows this gracious humility and submission and in this faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And Boaz shows up. He shows leadership. He shows what it means to be a godly man. Remember, guys, you've got to say his name like Boaz. He's a godly man. He's Boaz. And he's there. And we see coming through, we see very much husband material in this man. So the author is kind of setting us up here. Here's Ruth. Oh, here's Boaz. And we get to the end of chapter 2. And uh, we read that Ruth kept working in Boaz's fields, gleaning wheat for the rest of the harvest. And so now we come to chapter 3. And the harvest has come to an end now. Matter of fact, if you look at the end of chapter 2, let me get over there real quick. I should have already had my Bible there. If you get to the end of chapter 2, it says this. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz. That was Boaz's protection plan for her, remember? Keep close to my young men and my young women. Gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
So now we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And I need to rework my notes here because I've lost a page. I don't know if God's trying to tell me something. All right. All right, well, I'm just going to have to remember page 2. All right. We get to chapter 3 here, and we see this plot that Naomi hatches to try to get Ruth and Boaz together and to get Ruth a husband. And so let's read the very first couple of verses here of Ruth chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now what is she saying here, should I not seek rest for you? This reminds us way back of chapter 1 when she was trying to urge the daughters to go back. She said, go back and find rest in the home of a husband. That term there when she says, I want to find rest for you, what she's saying is, I want to find you a husband. I want to find you a home to come under, to give you protection, to give you provision, to give you purpose. I want to find you a husband. She says, shouldn't I do that? Now, in our culture today... This may sound a little weird, but this, this is not out of place at all. This is exactly what everyone would have expected in Ruth's culture, and that is that the parents were the ones in charge of finding the spouse. The parents were the ones in charge of finding the mate. Now, in this case, normally it would be the father and the mother. But in this case, she has no father and mother with her. She's left her father. She's left her mother, so that duty really falls upon Ruth. And actually, we're seeing a little bit of a change here in Ruth's attitude. Remember, she's been sweetening. She's been getting better. She started off bitter, and now she's getting better. She started off bitter because she was only focused on herself. But now, she's looking at Ruth. She sees this young, probably 25-year-old woman and says, You know what? I need to find you a husband. That's my duty. She realizes that's her duty because Ruth doesn't have a father. She doesn't have a mother present. So the mother-in-law needs to step in here and help find a spouse for Ruth. So she, she recognizes that and says, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And so she has a plan here, and we're going to go through this plan here in a second. I call it Operation Threshing Floor, okay? She hatches a, 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 this intricate, detailed plan for Boaz and for Ruth, for Ruth to, meet, to get together with Boaz. And, and so we're going to call it Operation Threshing Floor, and her fir- first, we've got to look at her objective. Let me, boy, I'm really out of it today. When I'm on, oh, Zyrtec and other stuff, I just can't think straight. First of all, I want us to see in Ruth, we'll see three things. We'll see, number one, a risky plan that Naomi hatches. Two, we see brave actions from Ruth. And thirdly, we'll see a righteous response from Boaz. Naomi's risky plan, Ruth's brave actions and a righteous response from Boaz. Now, the first thing I want us to realize, let's look at 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 Naomi's risky plan. First thing is that she has an honorable objective. This is the right thing for her to do, is to try to find Ruth rest, to try to find Ruth a husband. When we look at this story, we think, what on earth is Naomi doing here? What on earth is, what is this plot she's hatched here? And I want us to see that, first of all, she has a very honorable objective. She has an honorable purpose. She wants to seek provision, protection, and purpose for Ruth. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 1, she had said she wanted Ruth to return to her mother's house because she wanted that exact thing for Ruth. So her her objective is honorable, it's right, and the second thing I want us to see is that she has, oh, all right, let's rewind this whole sermon and start back from the beginning. Go ahead and get me number two up if you can, guys, because I'm depending on that. There we go. She knows Boaz is an honorable man. So first of all, she has an objective. If you're, if you're a military man and you're putting together an operation, operation threshing floor, you've got to have an objective, but you also got to have a target. The target is Boaz, all right? The target's Boaz. Is not Boaz our relative is the next thing she says. He's already stepped up into the role of provider, of protector, and now Naomi wants him to be the man that gives Ruth purpose as a wife, uh, as a husband for her, and as perhaps a father for her children. 
We've already seen that he's a godly and worthy man. We spent most of last week looking at how, what a godly and worthy man he was. He's a man of man. He's a dudes, dude of dudes. He's a man of responsible leadership, gentle authority, and honorable generosity. So the objective of this risky operation is good and honorable. She wants marriage for her daughter. And the target is an honorable man named Boaz. But the question I think we have to ask here this morning as we read this story is, is this an honorable strategy? What she's asking him, her to do, is this an honorable strategy? Although it's very normal and very expected for the family of a young woman to seek a husband for their daughter, it's not so normal and expected for them to do it in the way that Naomi prescribes here in this story. A couple of things may be of note here. First of all, time is running out. Time is running out. Okay, it, it says that it's the end of barley harvest. We read that at the end of the last chapter. That means seven months have passed. Since Boaz and Ruth first met, seven months have passed, maybe even eight months. Matter of fact, we know that, that it's, it's over because even in this chapter right here, it says in verse 2, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were, past tense? In other words, Boaz hasn't really stepped up here. He hasn't stepped up. And he hasn't proposed, he hasn't stepped into that role. He's been providing for her, he's been giving her protection, but he hasn't stepped forward and said, hey, I'm ready to be the husband. And so Naomi realizes time is running out here. The, the harvest is over. Boaz hadn't stepped forward, so Naomi steps in and takes what I call a calculated risk. Now it's a risk because she's potentially putting Ruth's life in danger, to be honest with you. The threshing floor that we read of here, was a common place for prostitutes to show up to try to seduce men. Because men would often do exactly what Boaz did. They would stay with their grain to protect it and sleep by it at night. And so it was an easy place for prostitutes to go and target men. And if a woman was caught in prostitution in Israel, she was to be stoned. And so this is a risky, risky thing that, uh, that, that Ruth is asking Naomi's asking Ruth to do because it could be perceived wrong and her life could be in danger. She could be seen as an immoral woman just by going and doing what Naomi has asked. So let's look at her strategy here. First of all, she says, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. So our first part of the strategy is wash. Okay, if there's any single people in here trying to find a mate, that was just duh. Okay? Wash. Clean up. Go down to the threshing floor. Now, there's probably more here to this than just smelling good. This is probably a sign that her mourning has come to an end. Very possibly, Ruth has been dressed in the clothes of a woman who's been in mourning over the loss of her husband. We don't know for sure. But regardless, to do this, to anoint herself with oil, to, to get herself washed and ready like this, and to get all dressed up, would certainly be a sign that the mourning time has come to an end. This is also the language that Scripture uses for someone to get dressed up as a bride. We read it in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is the language of someone getting into a bridal gown. They're getting, she's getting dressed up, she's getting cleaned up, but she's also getting dressed up as a bride would get dressed up. So she's going to show up at this guy's feet in her wedding dress. Now, isn't that a hint? All right? So, you know, Boaz, look at your feet there. Whoa! Okay, so she's getting all dressed up. She's getting clean. She's, she's getting looking nice as a bride would. And next thing that we know about the strategy is that the location, she sends Ruth to the threshing floor. Now the threshing floor is a place where they would beat and crush the wheat, okay, and then they would, they would throw it in the air so the chaff would get blown out. Usually it was in a location that was high in the city, on a hill, maybe a little bit outside the city, so they could, they could uh, use the winnowing fork and throw the, the, it up into the air, and the grain would fall down, the heavier grain would fall down and stay there on the floor, and the chaff would blow off into the wind. And so that's what the, the location is. And usually that men would lay beside their wheat. They would do it in the evening because the winds were calmer in the evening. They didn't want gusty winds. They wanted nice, calm winds. And they would do it in the evening and sleep beside their grain to protect it. Archaeologists believe that in a city the size of Bethlehem, there was probably only one threshing floor, which means that's why Naomi knew that it was, it was Boaz's turn. They had to take turns with the threshing floor. So she, she hears that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor, and she says, ah, this is our opportunity. But it's very risky. 
I mean, get yourself looking good. Get yourself smelling good. Show up at an isolated place at night. Wait till he's had his fill of food and he's had some drink and he's merry. And then ask him. And then she says, tell him whatever you want to do. I'll, I'll do whatever you want to do. And that's a risky plan. Ross, would you send your daughter on that plan? No. I can see Ross steaming right now at, at Naomi. All right? This is a risky plan. Let's look at some of the other things she tells, him, tells her to do. Be patient until he's finished eating and drinking. Be discreet. She's supposed to observe where he's lying. And then slowly come up and uncover his feet, which is pretty direct here. There's more to that symbolism. We'll talk about it here in a second. Be submissive. Lie down. And he will tell you what to do. This is risky, risky, risky. But Naomi uh, has the plan, and Ruth submits to her plan and her strategy. But I want you to notice something about Naomi. She loves Ruth dearly. And she loves Boaz. She loves these two dearly. And I think we can safely assume that she loves them and cares deeply for them, and therefore, she would not intentionally put them into a place where they were going to fail. She also is very confident in their character, as we saw in chapter 2. And we'll see here in a few verses that Ruth's character and integrity has become known to the whole town of Bethlehem. They all know who Ruth is because of her integrity and her character. I think now that Naomi, what she's doing, would you believe it, chap? page 5 is missing too. I think I just figured out what happened. All right. Well, y'all can pray for me while you're out there and listening to the sermon. But I think what's happening here is that she's trusting in Ruth's character. She's trusting that, 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 that Boaz is an honorable man. And she loves them very much. And she's not going to send them out and put them in danger. It is a calculated risk. But she believes that nothing inappropriate is going to happen here in this passage. I think she's confident that nothing inappropriate is going to happen here in this passage. So she knows she has an honorable objective. She knows Boaz is an honorable man. And I do believe that she implements an honorable strategy. Because I believe that she's confident in their character. But more than that, more than that, She's confident in the character of God. She's confident that God is sovereign. So when you take a calculator risk, send a child overseas on a missions trip, take your family to a Muslim country where it's illegal to be a Christian, to be missionaries. When you take that calculated risk, you're also trusting in the providence of God. He's in control. If something's going to happen, it's not going to be outside of his purpose and his will and his control. So she's confident in Ruth's character, that Ruth isn't going to do anything inappropriate here. She's confident in Boaz's character, that he's going to respond appropriately here. But more than that, she's confident in the character of God. She's confident in the character of God. And that's Naomi's risky, risky plan. Now, now don't, don't misinterpret me here. This is intentionally, strategically, very... Um, suggestive language that Naomi's using here. This term to, um, to ask him to spread his wing over her, I'll talk about it here in a second, could also mean spread your garment or your cloak over me. This term to uncover his feet could also mean to uncover the whole lower half of his body and to expose him. Okay, to lie with someone in the scriptures oftentimes used in a sexual way. So the language here can go two ways. So the readers here are kind of going, whoa, what's happening here? It can go this way, or it can go this way. And they're kind of left with a cliffhanger here. Wait a second, I thought Ruth was a, a worthy woman. Is she going to be a worthy woman if she follows this plan? And I thought Boaz was a worthy man. Is he going to be a worthy man if, he follows, if they follow this plan? So the, the, the intent of the author here is to keep us hanging. And to hold on to this, and there's intentionally vague and intentionally suggestive language here used by Naomi. But I do believe it's an honorable strategy. Because I believe, as I said earlier, she's trusting in the character of these two and the character of God. 
The next thing I want us to look at is our, our Ruth's brave actions. Ruth's brave actions. What we see here is that Ruth, first of all, is obedient. She does exactly what her mother-in-law told her to do. She goes. She waits till he has drunk and had food. She, she quietly, slowly comes up, uncovers his feet, lays down at his feet, does everything the mother-in-law has told her to do. But Naomi had told her to say this. She had said, he will tell you what to do. But here we see Ruth boldly and bravely deviate from her mother-in-law's plan a bit. Look at verse 8. It says, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. At midnight, the man was startled. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. She doesn't say, do whatever you want. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She bravely gets straight to the point. Okay, and this shows that her motive was also not something sexual. Her motive here is that she wants him to be her redeemer. She wants him to be her husband. When God is calling us to take a calculated risk, it will almost always involve a test of our faith and a test of our character. Oh, go back for me, guys. When God is calling us to take a calculated risk, it will almost always involve a test of our faith and a test of our character. Now, I always grew up with the understanding that men were supposed to propose to the ladies. I mean, is that the way you've grown up? Men are supposed to propose to the ladies, especially during this time. I mean, certainly it was the role of the man to propose marriage to a young lady. And, and so we have here, Ruth is being very bold. She's breaking the norm. She's breaking the standard of the day. She's breaking the gender barrier here, and she is telling Boaz. Now, maybe you're uncomfortable saying that she's proposing to Boaz. She's at least proposing that he propose, all right? So she's saying, uh, here's the ring, buddy. Go ahead, all right? She's proposing that he propose. She's being very direct. She's being very bold here. He could have said, what is wrong with you? Get away from me, you immoral woman. Get away from me, you loose woman. Get out of here. This was a risk. But she's very bold. She's very brave. When she says these things, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is interesting. Servants during those days would oftentimes lay at the feet of their masters. And oftentimes a servant didn't have any money to have the cloaks that the masters had. And they would take the bottom corner of the master's cloak and cover themselves with it. It's very interesting here. She's taking the posture of a servant. She's going to cover his feet. She's laying at his feet. She is submissive to him. Now, your translation may say, spread your skirt over your servant. Let's just get a little, let's see here what yours, yours says. My, what I've read here this morning, it says, spread your wings over your servant. How many of yours says, spread your skirt over your servant? Okay, Ross. See, you got the one that's getting you fumed back there. Spread your skirt over your servant. Who says, spread the corner of your robe? Does anyone say that? Okay. Um, what are some other ones out there? Put your covering over your servant. Okay, so now, how are we to interpret this passage? How come ESV says wings, and all of yours say a covering or a cloak or the corner of your garment? Well, this translation here, if you, it can be translated either way, this word here. If you translate it one way, uh, it becomes, uh, it means wings. It literally means wings. If you translate it another way, it means the corner of a robe. Now, how are we to look at it here? Because if you look at it skirt, it adds even more tension to this already seemingly sexually charged passage. Okay, and so what, how are we to look at this here? Well, a concordance will reveal that the word here is used multiple times in the Old Testament, and almost always it's translated wings. Let me give you a couple of examples. Genesis 1.21. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. So, same word. It's used for wing. Another example, Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. So the bulk of the passages in the Old Testament that use this word refer to it as wings. But sometimes it is translated robe or skirt. Numbers 13, 8 says, Speak to the people of Israel. 
tell them to make tassels on the corners, that's the word, of their garments, according to the, throughout their generations, and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. So that word is used in this instance to refer to the corner of a robe. Or 1 Samuel 15, 27, says Samuel was turning to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe. Same word, okay? So it's used in different ways. So what, how do we know how to use it? The context drives the usage. So you get to this here, and no wonder it's translated both ways, because you're going, how is it to be used here? I mean, she's saying, put your cloak over me, put your skirt over me. Or she's saying, hey, put your wings over me. Or is she saying both? Well, I think that what we see here is that wings is a proper translation because of something we read earlier in the passage. But also, she uses that word for a reason. Because she is saying both. Because, you see, in in Jewish culture, if someone was going to marry someone, if if a husband was going to marry a a, a young lady, a husband, no, a man, a single man is going to marry a young lady, he would take his cloak, and in public he would put his cloak over her to symbolize she is now under my household, under my protection, under my wings. And he, he would do that. But we have a clue here as to what word to use if we look back one chapter. In chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, The Lord, this is Boaz speaking to, to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She uses the exact same word. So she uses the same word that Boaz used months earlier when he blesses her. And actually, this is a prayer to the Lord. And essentially what she's saying here is, Boaz, I want you to be the answer to your prayer. I want you to be God's representative and spread your wings over me because I've come to trust in Yahweh and have asked him to spread his wings over me. Ruth is in faith asking for Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. She is saying that, yes, I've come under the wings of Yahweh for protection, for provision, for purpose, and I want you to be God's means, God's instrument for making that come to fulfillment. I'm trusting in Yahweh's wings, thus I'm coming under yours. And I'm asking you to cover me with them. I'm asking you to be Yahweh's agent of covenantal protection, provision, and purpose. This test of her faith isn't a test of her faith in Boaz, it's her faith in God. She's trusting in God here when she says this. I'm trusting that God has, asked, has, has you to be the one to spread your wings over me as I come under his protection. Coming under one's wings was also a symbol of covenantal love. Ezekiel 16, 8. This is the only other time that this word is used in a marriage or love type situation. And this is God speaking of his relationship to his rebellious people. Ezekiel 16, 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. It's the same word. And covered your nakedness. I made my vow and you entered into a covenant with me, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. So Boaz would have also understood this double meaning. He would have understood what Ruth was saying. He knew the custom of the day. And he knew... That she, what she was saying, okay? She is proposing that he propose. Ruth is humbly but boldly and bravely asking Boaz to take on the role of husband and by doing so be God's wings for her. So with that, let me turn to Boaz's righteous response. Boaz's righteous response. The reader here is kind of on edge at this point because how is this man going to respond? She has said these things. Everything up to this point has had kind of a double meaning. It could be sexual, maybe not. Even the spreading the wings thing. How's Boaz going to interpret it? Well, we get to verse 10 and he says, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. If she were doing anything that in any way he considered to be loose or immoral, he would not have blessed her in the name of Yahweh. We know that he does not view what she's doing as a sexual come on. He's not viewing it that way. He sees what she's doing as something blessed, something God would bless. 
So he blesses her in the name of Yahweh. That's his response. He says, you've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So first of all, he acknowledges her intent. He acknowledges that she has a wholesome, honorable, blessed intent. He calls it an act of kindness. He calls this an act of kindness. Why? I I struggle with this, really. Why is he calling this an act of kindness? Because to me, if he's just calling it an act of kindness because she's wanting to be his wife, that's kind of selfish. He's just like, yeah, this is really awesome. You know, he's probably 55 years old. That's what most scholars think. That means she's probably 30 years younger than him. So is he just saying, wow, this is awful kind of you because he's selfish and that he's going to have a young bride? I don't think so. Why does he refer to this as an act of kindness? Because she's not doing this just for her. Remember, she had earlier embraced willingly a life of widowhood. She's not some hormone-driven woman trying to satisfy some need before the harvest is out. That's 21st century love stories. That's not happening here. That's not what's happening here. We don't even hardly have a category for the type of love that she's showing. She's showing hesed love. That's one of the themes throughout the book, the word hesed Loving kindness, steadfast love. So she is showing loving kindness, steadfast love. And he's impressed with this loving kindness and steadfast love toward whom? Toward Naomi. That's what he's impressed with here. This book isn't just about the redemption of Ruth. It's mainly about the redemption of Naomi. She's the one who left full and came back empty. This is about the redemption of Naomi. Naomi's sons had died. Naomi's husband had died. Her family line was done unless a redeemer intervened. Naomi's family line is over unless a redeemer steps in. She's doing this not just for her, but she's doing it for Naomi. Boaz knows that. If she just wanted a husband, she could have just got a husband. He even says that in his words, you could have gone after young men, whether rich or poor. She was beautiful. She's young. She's well known in Bethlehem by now. Okay, she could have married the cute doctor that moved to town, right? She could have had any man she wanted. And he says, wait a second here, you're choosing me because I'm a redeemer. And he recognizes this as tremendous hesed love. Ruth is not a 21st century woman. She has love for her mother-in-law and thus seeks her good. She has love for her God and thus seeks his protective wings. And in the providential sweetness of our good and sovereign God, he brings her to a man named Boaz who in effect enables her to fulfill that love for her mother-in-law and that love for God. And yes, she does love this man named Boaz too. There's not an absence of romantic love here. She loves Boaz too. And this is a godly man. And she's in love with this godly man. We see his kindness towards Ruth as he sees her kindness toward him. He keeps calling her daughter which kind of bugs you as you're reading the passage here, but I think that just represents how much younger she is than him. So he's acknowledged her intent, but he also acknowledges her integrity. He says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He calls her a worthy woman. He doesn't start calling her, Man, you floozy, sitting here at my feet, what are you doing? He calls her a worthy woman. He's blessed her in the name of Yahweh, So he's acknowledged her intent. Now he's acknowledging her integrity and says that you are a worthy woman. It's very interesting. In the Hebrew Bible, the books are not in the same order that they are in our English Bibles. Do you know where, does anybody here know where Ruth comes in the Hebrew Bible? It comes right after Proverbs. What's the last chapter in Proverbs? Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is about a worthy woman. The whole Almost the whole chapter is about a worthy woman. Matter of fact, Proverbs 31, woman is exactly the type of woman that Ruth has been. And it says here in Proverbs 31, verse 31, he says, Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works be praised in the gates. Now hang on to that phrase, in the gates, for a second. Because when he says, All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, The literal translation of that phrase is, all the gates of my people know that you are a worthy woman. 
The last verse of Proverbs is confirmed, is demonstrated in Ruth. He's saying, you're a woman who at the gates of the city, everyone says, she's honorable, she's worthy. And so I find it very interesting here. He's praising not only her intent, but also he's confirming her integrity. She sort of redeems the women of Moab. If you know how the Moabites started, and it's always hard to discuss these passages with kids here. But in Genesis chapter 11, you can go read it if you want to. But the Moabite people were started when they got, when, when Lot's daughters got him drunk, lied, lied with him, but acted immorally and started the people of Moab. She's sort of redeeming the people of Moab here. She's lying at the feet of a man and who's also had something to drink, who's also filled, and she's not going to take advantage of him. She could, but she's not going to. She redeems the women of Moab as well. Boaz is righteous here. His response thus far has been righteous, but all of a sudden a disappointment comes. A disappointment comes in the story here. This, this, the, the story writer is very good. Because you know all good stories have to have a point of conflict. I always get this real anxious when I'm watching a movie. And you get about three quarters of the way through the movie. And it seems like everything's going right. Because you know something's about to happen. Something's about to go wrong. Because, because if it didn't go wrong, it'd be a bad story. Then you'd walk out of the theater going, well, that stunk. You, something has to go wrong for it to be a good story. And so here is the conflict right here, verse 12. He says, and now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer Nearer than I. There's another man. There's a redeemer nearer than I. God is a good storyteller. He writes great drama on the pages of history. All of a sudden we get this really bad news. We think Boaz and Ruth are about to get together. He's about to accept her proposal that he proposed. And boom, a major bump in the road. How does Boaz handle this? Again, his righteousness shines through. Okay, he confirms his integrity. He confirms his integrity. He's not going to jump the gun. He realizes there's another redeemer. There's another one who can legally propose to her. He doesn't say, oh, well, who gives a rip? Who gives a rip about the law? Who gives a rip about this other guy? Let's just do this. He doesn't say, you know what? You love me. I love you. Love trumps everything. Let's just go right ahead. He's an upright man of integrity. He's patient, and he will do things in proper order. Now, young ladies out there. Listen to me. If you meet a man who's not willing to wait on all things, anything, if he's not willing to wait and do things in proper order, moral things and legal things, he is not a worthy man and he's not husband material. If you meet a young man out there who says, hey, you love me, I love you, let's just go. That is not a worthy man. He's not your husband. You find a worthy man, a godly man, who confirms integrity by saying, I'm willing to do things right, in the right order. And he does things right here in two different ways. One, he does things right here legally. Okay, he's going to wait. There's another redeemer. There's legal steps. Okay, I hear young couples say, I haven't heard it recently, but I've heard it from some that are close to me. You know what, what's marriage anyway? We, just, we love each other. We're married in our hearts. So we're going to go ahead and live together. That's, that's not the biblical prescription. Because a worthy man and a worthy woman says, no, let's get this right. So legally, but secondly, he wants to get things right morally. I mean, here he is on the threshing floor. Stars are shining. The moon might be out. There may even be a violin in the background. I don't know. But the mood is right. He's got a young woman sitting at his feet. It's cold out because he woke up because the breeze apparently woke him up. That was on page three, I think. It's gone somewhere. All of a sudden, here it is. You can just almost see Satan standing beside the threshing floor going, Boaz, man, go for it. But he's a man of integrity. And he's not going to jump the gun here. He's going to wait. So he's confirmed her intent. He's acknowledged her integrity and character. He's confirmed his own integrity. Finally, he confirms his intent. He says to her, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning. 
but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now, he's not going to rest. He's going to make sure he takes care of business. He does want to marry her. He confirms his intent. Okay, he says he's going to go take care of business immediately. He even swears upon the holy name of Yahweh that he's going to do this. But for now, he's going to demonstrate, he's going to demonstrate husband material as he continues to confirm his intent to protect and to provide for her again. How does he protect her in the rest of this passage? Well, first of all, by not sending her back. He doesn't send her back in the middle of the night. This is the day of the judges. Go read some passages in Judges and find out what happened to people that hang around in cities at nighttime. Some pretty scary stuff. He's not going to send her back across Bethlehem alone. Stay here. I'm going to protect you. And then he doesn't send her back empty-handed. Verse 15, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. So again, he provides for her. So he's protecting her. He's providing for her. This six measures probably weighed about 80 pounds. That tells you something about Ruth, doesn't it? She's not just a dainty. She's, she's, she is a strong woman as well. She is buff and beautiful, all right? She's tough and tender. Next week, we'll see what comes of Boaz's legal efforts to wed Ruth. But for now, let's turn it back as Ruth comes back home. I can't imagine what Naomi's doing all night, okay? What's she thinking? Oh, boy, I really blew it. Should I have done this? Is she second-guessing herself? Is she, what's she doing all night? Okay, but here comes Ruth. She walks in. says, and when she came in to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law said, How did you fare, my daughter? Now, I believe that's a bad translation. Because the literal translation says, Who are you, my daughter? And I think the reason most of our translations put, How did you fare, my daughter? Is because we don't think, Who are you, my daughter, makes any sense. But I think it makes great sense. Let's use what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, who are you, my daughter? And why does she say that? Because I think she wants to know, are you Boaz's now? Do you have his last name? Are you part of his family now? What's going on? Tell me. Did he propose after you proposed? What happened? Who are you? And it's kind of a theme throughout the whole book. Kind of theme throughout the whole book. Who is this Ruth? Who is she? Okay, when we get to Bethlehem and she's winnowing in the field, I mean, she's out gleaning in the fields. Boaz says, who is she? Who is she? When when she's asleep at his feet, he wakes up and goes, who are you? And now she walks in to see Naomi. She goes, who are you? We want to know, who is Ruth? The author of the book of Ruth is saying, who is this woman? She She is a part of the household of Boaz. Not yet, but she's about to be. So she asks her, who are you? It says, Ruth then told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, I'm almost done. (coughs) Even skipping two pages, I know we're going a little late. (coughs) I'm almost done. But I want us to think here for a second. Why does the author focus on this? I mean, of all the things Ruth could have said... He focuses on the food she brought back. Why? Why does the author focus on this? Well, I think it's because food has been kind of a theme throughout the whole book. Food has been symbolic of God's provision, of his favor. There's famine in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Then bread returns to the house of bread. It's barley harvest. There's wheat. There's grain. She's been, she's been gleaning wheat and grain. And now we see the symbolism here of what God is doing. He's filling up Naomi. Remember what Naomi said? I went away full and I came back empty. And look at what Boaz had said. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It's just this symbolism here that God is filling Naomi up. She was bitter. She was angry. And here God is. He's filling her up. And giving her more blessings than she can even Imagine. This shows Boaz's respect and his Hesed love for Naomi as well as Ruth. It is a very real symbol of God's faithfulness, his Hesed faithfulness to Naomi through her Redeemer, Boaz. And so Naomi says, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. 
she also knew Boaz's character and know that he's going to take care of this today. So next week we're going to find out how he took care of it. But remember in this story, this is a great love story, but underneath this love story is an even greater love story. Remember what I quoted last week, Spurgeon saying that Jesus is our glorious Boaz. He invites us to be Ruth. He invites us to be his bride. The church is called his bride. The plan, though, may be a little bit risky for us. Jesus said we've got to be willing to take up our own cross. We've got to be willing to give up our material possessions. We've got to be willing to break with earthly relationships so that his might take priority over those relationships. We've got to be willing to, to do anything he tells us to do and to serve him and to go wherever he might tell us to go. It's going to be a calculated risk if you want to be part of the bride of Christ. It's going to involve calculated risk. I do not believe in easy believism that you can come and pray a prayer and go on and live your life however you seem to want to live it and then somehow be saved at the end of your life? I believe Christ calls us to life of sacrifice. I believe the Scriptures are filled with it. And that's what it means to be part of His family, to be part, to be His bride, is that we've taken a calculated risk and we've come to this one true God. We've followed Him. But oh, how it's worth it. We, like Ruth, must come to him and repent of our sin, turn away from our sin, bathe ourselves and repent of our sin and trust that he will do a work in our heart. He will put his garment over us and declare us his. We must too lay, lay down at his nail-scarred feet as his servants and be willing to do whatever he tells us to do. We too must say to our Redeemer, spread your wings over, you, over us. Jesus, spread your wings over us. Cover us. Provide us with forgiveness of sin. Cover us with your righteousness. Protect us from the evil one. Provide for us. We come under your covenantal wings of love. That's the bigger story here. And it's the more important story here in the book of Ruth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we close now in prayer and as we sing a song to you just to, just to respond, God, I, I do pray that, um, Lord, that you make something of this train wreck this morning of a sermon and just use it for your glory. And God, that you would, um, Lord, speak to us through your word because you don't speak through me. You speak through your word. And so, God, I pray that we would recognize here um, that there's a bigger story. Lord, if we've just thought that we can somehow just go about living our life however we want to live it and uh, pray some silly prayer at the end of a service and, and think that, well, because I prayed that prayer that I, you know, I'm going to heaven someday. God, help us to see that what you're calling us to is, is something much greater than that. You're calling us to come under your wings. You're calling us to, to come under your covenantal love. And that involves a calculated risk. That involves being willing to give up everything. So God, I don't want in this church people coming to you and receiving you unless they're willing to give it all up. I want them to recognize their sin and I want them to recognize their need for a Savior. And I want them to pray and to ask you to come and to take over their life. But I want them to be willing to sacrifice everything. So God, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us be a church that lives out what it means to be the bride of Christ. That we're willing to go out and take calculated risks to minister to the community and to love people who may to many people seem unlovable. So God, help us to be who you want us to be here at Harvins. God, let us respond to you appropriately as we sing this old hymn, as we sing Amazing Grace. Lord, let us just sing it to you because your grace is amazing. Your wings are amazing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would as we sing. Sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Sweet. 
seated. I'll be real brief here with announcements. Um, small groups and Bible studies are relaunching after, uh, after Labor Day. I'm very excited about that. Uh, we've got the Explore the Bible uh, class that I'm looking forward to teaching again. That will be happening during the second hour right after the service. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet for that. Um, you, I mean, you don't have to sign up to come. You can you know, come, and that's fine, but it'll be helpful for us to know uh, how many people are going to be a part of that. Um, also, I'm looking forward to the Radical Small Group Study that will be on, uh, on Thursday evenings uh, starting at 6.30 here in Decula, going through the book Radical, Taking Your Faith Back from the American Dream. I think this is going to be a life-changing study, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Sign-up sheets for that in the back as well. 
And I'm really excited. We've had, we've had folks for a long time telling us, well, how about sometime we just do like a, a, like a guy's study or, or a study for, for the ladies? Well, we've heard you, and we're going to be doing that. And uh, uh, Steve's going to be heading up for the one for the guys, Heather for the gals, and um, uh, that's going to be on Wednesday evenings in Decula. Uh, talk to them for more information about that. Um, uh, we forgot to bring the sign-up sheets for those today, but if you're interested in being a part of those, talk to Steve and Heather, and they'll be happy to tell you about that. Membership class also uh, coming up soon as well. If you're interested in joining the church and want some more information about Harbin's, uh, see Steve about that as well and let him know that you're going to be a part of that. Potluck uh, coming up in just a minute. What's that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Potluck here in just a few minutes. It's going to be downstairs. Um, uh, If you did not bring food, uh, don't use that as an excuse not to join us and hang out with us. Uh, I still want you to come and, and be with us and be a part of that, and we'll, we'll share, okay? So let me uh, pray for us, pray for the food, and then uh, you'll be dismissed to go downstairs. Father, thank you so much for the word that was preached this morning, and uh, <clears throat> I pray that you would um, help us to meditate on the things that we're learning about in the book of Ruth, uh, not just today, but throughout the week as well. And, uh, <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much for the food that we're about to enjoy and, and uh, for the hands that have prepared it. And I pray that you'd bless that. Bless our time together and help us to glorify you. The Bible says whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. So I pray that you would uh, help us to, to do this potluck to the glory of God, starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Let's eat.